on this episode of the Resound Project podcast. And that's a very difficult balancing act because as soon as you say the latter, the Christian faith has social and political implications, someone wants to know, well, what are they? And church leaders, I think, need to at least take tentative steps in, in saying what they are, but even tentative steps are going to be occasions for dissent and, and strong controversy. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project Podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together, we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. In this second part of my conversation with Mark Knoll, we discuss the term evangelical, what it meant in the past, how it's been politicized in the present, and what it may mean in the future. Mark also shares advice for those who are seeking ways to decrease political polarization within the church. Mark Knoll is a world-renowned scholar specializing in the history of Christianity in the United States and one of the foremost experts on the evangelical movement in America. Mark's most recent book, entitled Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be, was co-written with leading historians David Bebbington and George Marsden. Together, they explore the past, present, and future of a movement in crisis. Let, let's uh, turn the focus then to some of the other problems in the United States in particular and what we need to understand or see in order to gain that wider perspective. The evangelical movement, from what I can gather, seemed to have been very much on the periphery uh, until the 1960s and 1970s, and then the very word evangelical entered into the mainstream, uh, perhaps as a result of Jimmy Carter's election and, and uh, identifying himself as a evangelical. Time magazine in 1976 declared uh, uh, that year to be the year of the evangelical. Uh, so to, to what extent um, was the term evangelical politicized as it entered the mainstream in the 1970s, 1980s, or, or maybe you've got a different take on, on how it became more prominent or why people started paying more attention to it. Yes, I do. I do have a slightly different uh, way of looking at the, that history in the 60s and 70s, although this is not, not dramatically different. Than that. The uh, situation that we have now very directly related to the civil rights activity the civil rights uh, decision by the Supreme Court in the 1950s, and then the legislation that began in a preliminary way with under President Eisenhower and came to fruition under President Johnson. Until we have that civil rights activity, Protestants that we would call evangelicals in the North are lean strongly to the Republican Party. White Protestants that we'd call evangelicals in the South were almost all Democrats. The civil rights movement removed segregation 
as a principle that white Southern evangelical Democrats defended tooth and nail. The civil rights legislation passed, as President Johnson himself indicated when he signed one of these bills in 1964, 1965. He said, the Democrat, we've lost the, Democrat, the white Democratic Party in the South for a generation. Well, it's been more than a generation. What developed was for the first time since the 1820s and 30s, the possibility of national movements where the evangelical label for white Christians united people from the North and from the South. And that, in combination with some of the uh, uh, big issues of the Carter years and then President Reagan, meant that there was a white evangelical constituency that was no longer divided by what had been the Southern defense, the Southern white defense of segregation. Once the nation and most of the Protestants included, accepted the reality of the civil rights movement, then, then there was no longer that kind of division. And it was possible to have a national white Protestant constituency. Civil rights, I think, is important also because it was the signal event in post-war American history where the federal government acted to bring about major social change. An active federal government had been in place since the Great Depression and obviously in World War II with a huge expansion of, of federal government power. But the civil rights movement was, at least from one angle, the modern time when the, when the federal government acted with a real impact on life on the ground. And uh, there, historians like Randall Balmer and Daniel K. Williams uh, have written some really perceptive things about what happened in the 1970s and 1980s. There were Republican Party operatives who, for political reasons and maybe in some cases for religious reasons, realized that there was a constituency here, constituency here that could be enlisted for the Republican Party. And they, they were successful. So we, we've had uh, from the Reagan years, uh, uh, those white Protestants who are defined as evangelicals have overwhelmingly supported the uh, Republican Party. And the only other, interestingly enough, the only other demographic in the United States that can be identified religiously, which has been as strong for any other political party, are black churchgoers, many of whom in religious terms look like evangelicals, but black churchgoers have been overwhelmingly supportive of the Democratic Party. So we have this division of political allegiance between groups of Christians that in theological and religious practice terms really are very close together. This was, you, you mentioned the book that uh, George Marsden and David Bemington and I wrote that as a fine essay by Jamar Tisby, we, a black, young black scholar, we asked him, should African-Americans be considered evangelicals? We didn't know what he would say. And he wrote, in effect, it was a, a nice essay. There's, there's, of course, he's, a, he's becoming a professional historian, so he has to say it's complicated. <laughs> but he said, overwhelmingly, yes, overwhelmingly, uh, most black churchgoers believe that the Bible is authority. Most black churchgoers believe that you need personal redemption. Most black churchgoers believe the work of Christ is, is central. So. That's the, one of the anomalies in, in uh, U.S. history, and that's why I, I push the, the analysis of the, the political 
religious connections back into the 1950s and 60s, but with manifestations, as, as you've indicated, from the Carter years right, right to the present. So you've sketched out how the church had been politicized on the right. Is there a parallel story to how the church had been politicized on the left? The parallel story to progressive religious politicization is, I think, a mirror image of white Protestant evangelical politicization moving to the right. And the, and the, the crux is how should uh, government power be used? Um, and the, the, the great issues uh, that progressives like all require the exercise of government power. So, so better health care for more Americans. Uh, definitions of freedom have always been important in American history. And once uh, civil rights leaders were effect, uh, successful in, in arguing for the freedom for oppressed African-Americans, which in my view is an entirely legitimate argument, then forces on the right and the left wanted to insist that their understandings of freedom should be reinforced by the federal government. So for progressives, and, and certainly many from the Christian churches, for progressives, this meant the government should act to but expand medical care. The government should act to uh, restrict the expansion of nuclear weapons, to uh, stand down international conflicts wherever possible, to eventually uh, sanction free choices of alternate lifestyles, which traditionally had been seen as, as uh, merely evil, but now came to be defined by progressives, including some uh, re religious progressives, as uh, choices that people made under God and therefore needed to be supported by the government. So the constituencies of progressive and, and uh, populist <clears throat> movements in the present are not equally religious in their constituency, but they're very definitely is a, is a religious, oftentimes Christian, denominational support for what are called leftist or progressive movements in, in the last 30 and 40 years. I see that that is a really crucial factor in bringing about the politicization of, of uh, that white evangelical constituency and then also defining the issues that people will be arguing about. What should the federal government do about segregation? about COVID-19, about uh, uh, instruction in the schools. In the, in the 1960s and 70s, it was science instruction that irritated a lot of people, traditional people who didn't like the word evolution. Now, of course, there's, there's uh, great debates around critical race theory. But, but the, the, the key element, or a key element in many of these discussions, what, what is the national federal government trying to do? And that question became central in my view because the national federal government had been the agent to ending the nation's terrible commitment to racial difference and racial segregation. So once, once that action took place, people advocating for all sorts of things said in effect, well, the government gave us the right answer on segregation 
now the government, the national, the federal government needs to give us the right answer on X, Y, Z and other matters. Not everyone agrees with this, this way of looking, looking at things, but I, 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 don't, I just don't see any, any way of talking about modern white Protestant evangelicals and the issues that galvanize modern contention without looking back to the seismic changes brought about by civil rights act- activism in the 50s and 60s. So as a result of that, in our popular culture today, it seems like the word evangelical basically means white people who consider themselves at least somewhat religious and who vote Republican. And I suspect that the average person on the street assumes that that's what the word evangelical means. Is it a lost cause, do you think? Is, Is the term evangelical a lost cause in the United States to describe someone's theological convictions because it has been so politicized? Uh, or is it a term that is worth reclaiming? And if so, is it even possible to do so? Well, I do think it is a term worth reclaiming, and particularly when taken, uh, when, when used in, uh, in a way that draws on the, the riches of a tradition that would include people like John Stott and, and uh, Billy Graham. Should the word be redeemed? Well, it's definitely, in my view, should be, but for a set of theological and religious emphases. So what's an evangelical, in my view, is somebody who believes that the, the message of reconciliation with God in Christ has to be appropriated personally, that, that the message is found uh, most authoritatively in the Bible, and that at the center of the Bible is the work of Christ on, on the cross. Can it be redeemed? Well, that's the question that historians really can't answer. We, we, we're terrible at looking at the future. Uh, my own sense is that if in an American context, the word continues to be used for white supporters of the Republican Party, it's time to put the word aside. Because in, in my view, when a word is used like that, it, it for example, um, implies that black believers who, for different reasons, don't like the Republican Party, there's something wrong with their Christian faith. Well, that's, that's just a terrible thing to say. Um, the difficulty we confront now is that the sage advice of someone like Billy Graham in 1974 to make sure that the proclamation of the kingdom is the first priority and then everything else is second priority. That proclamation is, is I, don't, I don't know if it's being drowned out or whether, whether it's hopeless, but it's, it's hard to hear it. And uh, whether or not the word you know, survives as a theological and religious term in the American environment, I, I don't know. Worldwide, I think, I think it will, just because the, the uh, expanding Protestant and to some extent Catholic movements in the world are characterized by at least some of these traits that have marked out evangelicals since the 18th century. Well, this also makes me think of uh, the musician Prince Rogers Nelson, who went by Prince, but then he changed his name and was often referred to as the artist formerly known as right. Prince. <laughs> and I think that there's a lot of Christians today who uh, would be hesitant to adopt the label evangelical for themselves now, although they would have been comfortable with it in the past. So we would call ourselves uh, Christians formerly known as evangelicals. Uh, so one question I have is, uh, 
what should we call ourselves or does it matter? Do we need to call ourselves anything? Should we just call ourselves Christians or Protestant Christians or Christians committed to the historic Christian faith? Uh, Is it important to have uh, a name by which we can uh, link fellow Christians together across geographical and denominational divides or is that an unimportant uh, thing to consider? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I, I think it's a question that pastors and denominational officials and publishers, editors need to really wrestle hard with leaders of organizations. Uh, my own sense is that it's, it's always quite important to recognize friends and allies, people that can be counted on for support for different um, in Christian causes. And clearly labels are one of the ways that makes that uh, easier, except if the, the meaning is being drained out of the labels. I do think pushing back against what has become the, the, the rapid forms of communication, is very, I think it's very difficult to make nuances, discriminations in 144 characters. You need a paragraph, you need several sentences, and, and uh, where people are able to say a paragraph about themselves, I think that, that'll be a way of finding allies and supporters, but yeah, you put your finger on a, a real problem because the way the, the political religious world exists now, it, it is, it's very hard to say one thing or even two things and to identify groups that actually do hang together. It also seems to me that a lot of pundits and pollsters have contributed to the confusion around the term, often because perhaps they fail to understand the actual religious commitments and affiliations of the people that they're polling. But if you had the opportunity, let's say, to educate a pollster or a journalist, what, what would you want to help them understand? If, if there was one or two takeaways that, that they could uh, carry with them into their vocation, what would you most want them to know and appreciate especially as it regards to interacting with people with at least traditional religious convictions? I was privileged for many years at Wheaton College to work with a, a political science colleague, Lyman Kelstick, and, and, and his colleagues, Corwin Smith at, at uh, Calvin College and, and several others. And they actually did develop a series of, of, of public opinion um, questions that got at some of the things that you're talking about. The difficulty was that the good surveys that they developed usually had five or six questions that they used for discriminate for purposes of discriminating amongst groups. So you, you would ask, what, what do you believe about such and such? But then you'd also be asked, are you, do you regularly participate in, in your local church? Uh, do, do, you, uh, do you pray? Are you involved in any activity serving the community? And if you ask these kind of questions, the, the number of people who would show up as, quote, evangelicals, unquote, would actually go down pretty pretty far or pretty fast. You, you cannot ask a simple question. You cannot ask a simple question. Are you an evangelical or have you been born again? You've got to ask more questions. And uh, actually, the really good survey researchers mm-hmm. do that. But unfortunately, their stuff tends to be in academic journals and big books that are expensive from university presses rather than on the, 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 uh, the, the news broadcast in, in the evening. So 
Uh, my advice would be never ask only one question. Always ask three or four possible questions to try to get at those groups that really do share beliefs and practices, keeping those two things together. Well, what advice would you offer to faithful Christians today who would like to help decrease the partisan polarization that's afflicting the church? Do you have any advice for the Christian who's committed to the church but is dismayed by the way in which it's being ripped apart by politics? It's very difficult to come up with uh, straightforward answers to how, how to make things better, uh, particularly when most people who are paying attention to public life have pretty strong opinions about what's right and what's wrong. I think trying to listen to people that you know you disagree with is always a good thing, but if you, if you know they're wrong, it's hard to listen to them. And of course, uh, the conviction that somebody you're listening to is wrong can come from the right, come from the left, come from, come from anywhere. I do think that church leaders have the responsibility to do a very difficult thing, which is to welcome everyone into the fellowship of faith, to insist upon the reality of Christian faith for all races, all ages, all political persuasions, and, and to say that of course the Christian faith has political and social implications. And that's a very difficult balancing act because as soon as you say the latter, Christian faith has social and political implications, someone wants to know, well, what are they? And church leaders, I think, need to at least take tentative steps in, in saying what they are. But even tentative steps are going to be occasions for dissent and, and strong controversy. Uh, it used to be that you could say, well, Christians would articulate principles, Christian leaders should articulate principles, and then the details and how you work them out will be uh, what will allow for some, some good conversation. It might have disagreements, but if you say the believers should be uh, in the forefront of defending those who can't defend themselves, that's right. That's, that's clearly biblical. What's that mean in practice? Well, for some parts of the Christian community, it's going to mean that you, you, you put, put real heavy emphasis on preserving the life of, of the unborn. For other groups of Christians, it's going to mean preserving the, the possibilities for those who would like to immigrate to the United States. And a church leader who says, well, I'm, I'm for protecting the life of the unborn, and I'm for a radical reworking of our immigration policy. I'm going to probably get eggs splattered from both sides. So it, it does seem imperative to me to, to, to make the prioritization of fundamental Christian values most important, but it's also imperative to, to say that these fundamental Christian values have real-world applications, and that's a really delicate task. Well, you're absolutely right about the challenge, and that's the needle we're constantly trying to thread. And whereas in the past, perhaps you could get away with saying Christianity has something to say about the political and social order, and you have to work out the implications of the gospel for our individual and corporate life, and that would be sufficient. But now 
church leaders are pressed. Well, what are the specifics? Give us the details. And it's not enough to simply offer principles. And I think that has dramatically increased the degree of difficulty for pastors who are trained in theology and biblical studies and church history, but not politics, (laughs) not sociology. (laughs) I've recently thought that a source of many of our problems, not only in the relationship between Christianity and culture, but within our own churches, is that we're taking our cues for what we should think about some of these divisive hot topics from other sources than the scriptures themselves. To what extent do you think that faithful Christians need to immerse themselves more in the scriptures and and the unfolding revelation of Jesus in the Bible in order to think through biblically how should we approach the topic of race? How should we think about what justice is from God's point of view and how we pursue it as faithful members of his kingdom? In in what ways do we as Christians need to lean more into our tradition in order to navigate the current contemporary scene? I do think there is an issue today about uh, disciplining uh, social media because the, the, the content that's easily available is, is so uh, uh, quick to access. It can be so uh, spectacular, so attractive, uh, but that can also uh, distort the balance between understanding what uh, Christian tradition, scripture, thoughtful interaction with other believers, uh, that, that's pure gold. And what comes from the world is it, not pure gold. It, ha- it, has, it has to be filtered. But if, if the quantities and the intensities are much, much greater than what's coming in from the uh, study of, of the Christian uh, realities, then, then there will be problems. So, yes, some kind of redirection of time, energy, and attention. And I, I speak to, my, to, to myself as well as others. That, that's, a, that's a difficult task. That's a challenge. I've got one final question for you. You you entitled the uh, book that you edited uh, Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be. So what is your hope in terms of what evangelicals could be as you look to the future? I, I would hope that people who either want to use that name for themselves or who are reluctant to use that name for themselves because of matters in society will have the real confidence in uh, standing firm on the basis of being reconciled in Christ, acting courageously with integrity under the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then whatever terms are used to talk about such people and such actions, I, I don't think that's nearly as important as uh, living faithfully uh, according to the beliefs and truths that we know to be actually the case. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.